we just pray that as we move to this uh, portion of the worship service that you would open our hearts to hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, a couple of quick announcements. Um, baptism, uh, we had a couple of people scheduled for baptism. It didn't work out this morning, but uh, we want to let you know if you want to be baptized next month that you can come uh, after the first service or the second service next week, and there's a baptism class. It's not really a class as much as it's just a chance for us to get to know you a little bit, you to get to know us. We'll explain to you a little bit about what baptism is, what baptism isn't, but it's mainly just a way for you to get into uh, uh, the process so that uh, come this time next month we can uh, have you baptized. And we believe at Grace that if you've made a decision to follow Christ, then the next right thing for you to do is to get baptized. It's an act of obedience, um, and it doesn't save you, but uh, it's what we're called to do in Scripture. So the baptism class is coming up. I also want to remind you that we have Tuesdays at Grace started last week. There's tons of room in all of the classes for you to step in. This is a primary place for you to get connected. Uh, some of you we say, well, I already have a Bible study here. I've been doing Bible studies there. I don't really need to be there on Tuesdays. Well, maybe you're the one that needs to be there in order to connect with other people and help them along. All of our small group, or all of our studies are done in a small group setting. And uh, regardless of where you are in the journey, uh, Grace needs you to be there to connect with other people. So show up. We have a men's study that's very dynamic and awesome. We have a women's study that's, that's awesome. Uh, we actually have a group of people that are going through 1 John, which is what we're starting today. So you can be studying 1 John as we're teaching on 1 John throughout the week. Um, there's just all kinds of places to plug in. So come on Tuesday nights at 7, grab some dessert, uh, and go to the class. And uh, today at 3 o'clock is a new member class. So if you are planning to uh, join or want information about what it means to join Grace Community Church, uh, you need to come back at 3, but you need to stop and let them know so that they can get you something to eat, uh, which will happen during the class. All right, so I'm excited. We're launching this new series today, the series um, where we're going to walk through 1 John. We're going to teach 1 John verse by verse, the entire uh, a book of 1 John. And, and I, I really am excited because I think John has something to tell us individually, but he also has something to tell us corporately. I think this letter is, uh, is an exciting letter for us to walk through. And I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this. I'm not sure this is a good thing, but um, John is my favorite New Testament author. I'm not sure we're allowed to have New Testament authors, but it's out there now, so if we're not, I'm in trouble, I guess. Um, but John is my favorite New Testament author, and I think probably because um, John's writing are a little less structural, a little less technical. Um, he's still tons of theology. We're going to see today that there's a lot of theology in what John's writing, um, but his, his writings tend to be a little more... Um, from the heart, I guess, and not, not that any of the other writers weren't from the heart, but there's just a different sort of feel to it that I, I actually appreciate what I'm reading. I think John gets to the heart stuff pretty quick, and really, if you, if you study John, one of the major themes that come from John is, is that when we are with God, when we spend time with God, God's attributes actually rub off on us, so you'll see that throughout First John. You'll see it as a theme that runs through John, that there is a, a relational, transformational thing that's taking place, and I totally relate to that. A couple weeks ago, um, I said to you that we are a product of the company we keep, right? I, I use that phrase a few times. Well, what we'll see in First John is, is we are actually transformed when the company we keep is God. We're transformed when we spend time with God. So I love that part about John, but I also love the way John describes himself. You see, John called himself the, the one Jesus loved. And if we, we aren't careful, you could look at that and you could think that that would be a statement of pride, that he's actually bragging, you know, I'm the one Jesus loved, like he's puffing out his chest, beating his chest in some kind of uh, bragging sort of way. But, but I don't think that's it at all. And, and I think uh, many scholars would agree that John isn't, isn't saying something in a braggadocious way. He's actually saying a statement of humility. 
He's actually saying, even with all of my flaws, even with all of the, the ways that I lack what I need, even with all of the ways that I've screwed up, I'm the one Jesus loves. Even with all of my problems, I'm the one Jesus loved. Jesus still wanted to spend time with me. He still moved towards me. He still loved me, even though I'm messed up, screwed up. I'm the one Jesus loves. And I don't know about you, but I can totally relate to that because I am a world-class screw-up. Uh, over and over, I find myself doing what I shouldn't do. I, I look at my life and, and, and realize in, and in areas of my life where I'm, I'm not really honoring God, I spent two decades of my life, really the better part of two decades, really running from God. I knew who God was. I made a decision to follow Christ, but in my rebellion, I ran from God. And in all of those two decades, God still pursued me. God still chased after me. God never stopped loving me. And so it's easy for me to, to, to look back at my life and it's easy for me to say, look, I'm the one that Jesus loved. You know, when I think about even what I do up here and, and teaching, I, I just realize, look, if it's, not, if it's not a Jesus thing, I got nothing for you because I'm not smart enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not educated enough. All I have is Jesus in me, but the reality is I know Jesus loves me and I know I'm the one Jesus loves. And that's worth hanging on to. So this is a great place for us to start the series. What I want you to do is just in a moment of honesty, just between you and God, I want you to ask yourself that question, are you the one? Do you really know God in such a way that you could say, I'm the one that God loves? Has your interactions with God been such that you could say to your, to your friend, you could say to somebody close to you, you know, I'm the one. I'm the one Jesus loved. It's a perfect thing for us to think about. Lord, as we move into 1 John, I just pray that you would help this truth to become true for each one of us as we move through the next few weeks and, and uncover this amazing letter that you have uh, uh, put into your scriptures. Lord, help us to uh, get to the place where we know that we're the one, where we know how much you love us, where we can live out of our understanding of how loved we are. Even as we move through today's passage, I pray that the, the information and the, the, the amazing truth that comes out of it will help us to know that we are the one. In Jesus' name, amen. So grab your Bibles, turn to 1 John. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 1, of course. We're actually going to start in chapter 1 in verse 1. That's how it'll work. Um, we're, if you're using your Bible on your seat, it's page 862. Uh, 1 John, not the Gospel of John. 1 John is way in the back of the New Testament. So you got James, First and Second Peter. Right? First, second, third, John, Jude, Revelation. So if you get to Jude or Revelation, you've gone just a little bit too far, just go back and find First John. And while you're looking for it, I'll give you a little bit of time because I want to give you a little bit of the context. And when we study scripture, knowing the context is important for us because the more we know about the reason the letter was written, the more we know the, the, the historical context behind the letter, the more we know the circumstances for why the letter was written, the easier it is, easier it is for us to make application of the letter. So we, we read what John is writing and if we know what the audience, the, the intended audience was going through, it helps us to, to pull out what we need to pull out. And if we can make application for them, then we can also make application for, our, for ourselves. So part of the context is knowing all that, and part of the context is knowing who the author of the letter actually is. So in this case, this is John, the same John that wrote the fourth gospel. So you know there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? That's the fourth gospel. And, and, and that same author, about two decades later, most scholars would believe he writes first John. So same guy writing both letters. And we're actually going to jump back and forth, and that'll get a little bit confusing, but I'll try to articulate clearly when I'm in the Gospel of John and when I am in 1 John. But it's the same guy writing both of these. 
And the, the context of the letter is that John is writing to his church. He's writing to a church that he is a pastor of, and he could be writing to a, a group of churches. We don't really know, but, but it's, if it's a group of churches, it's a group of churches all within a, a, a region, and we don't even know for, for sure what the region is. It could be Ephesus. We're, we're not exactly sure, but what we do know is that it's one of John's churches. He's actually pastoring this church, and so he's writing to his flock, and he's writing to them because there is a wave of false teaching that's hitting the church. And most of the false teaching is centered around whether or not Jesus really was the Savior, whether or not he really was God. There is false teaching about the divinity of Christ. And that false teaching has taken root in the church so much that it's created division. And, and what the scholars would tell us is that, is that John's church had actually gone through a split, that there was a, a rift within the church and there was division within the church and there was false teaching within the church. And so John begins to write a letter. And the thing that's amazing to me that I've been thinking about all week is, you know, when you think about it, all of the letters written to churches were written to address problems. And if all of the letters were written to address problems, what does that tell us about church? The churches have a lot of problems. And I don't know if that's um, comforting or disheartening. I haven't quite figured out. It's, it's, it just depends on where I am at the moment, and sometimes it's both. Um, but the truth of the matter is, we need to realize, look, this thing that we do called church, not, not the big C church, but this, this, this thing we do, it's, it's wrought with problems. There is going to be problems. If the apostles' churches had problems, pretty good odds our churches are going to have problems. But the beauty is we have this the, all of these letters written to the churches to help us to say, well, what do we do with our problems? How do we address the problems that we have? The truth is we're just a family trying to figure it out, and we are going to struggle. And so John is writing to address the false teaching and the division that exists within the church. And one of the things you'll see as you navigate through 1 John, and hopefully you'll see it as we get through this over the next few weeks, is you're going to see that, that really John's whole, the thread that runs through it is as you spend time with God, you will be transformed, or that we're actually transformed when we spend time with God is a way to say it. So, so we'll talk about God is love, and if you spend time with God who is love, you will begin to love. He talks about God is light. If you spend time with God, then you'll be light. There's this thing about spending time with God and God's attributes wearing off, and we're going to see that throughout all of 1 John. So that's the context. Let's read 1 John verses 1 through 4. 1 John verses 1 through 4. John writes, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard, so that, excuse me, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. These four verses have been described by theologians as a noble sweep that unfolds the purpose of God from eternity to eternity. Just look at that for a moment and think about that sentence. A noble sweep that unfolds the purpose of God from eternity to eternity. The purpose of God from eternity to eternity. How, if that's true of these four verses, it's pretty important that we figure out what it is John's saying, right? If, if truly the purpose of God from eternity to eternity is, is compressed or, or packed into these four verses, then, then it's a good work for us today to take those verses and unpack them and figure out, well, what is God's purpose for, from eternity to eternity? 
It's packed with foundational truth that we, that we need in order to, to thrive in our walk with Jesus. But it's, it's, the problem is, if you just read the verse, it's not really done in a, in a real structured, logical sort of way. Again, maybe that's why I like Johnny. He's kind of all over the place, kind of like me. But anyway, some, some authors say that this, these four verses are a grammatical tangle that the grammar is all tangled up. And so our job today, our, our work today, is going to be to try to untangle these four verses and walk away with, well, what is that, that purpose of God that's being put out there from eternity to eternity? So my encouragement to you is get out your pen and get ready because we've got a lot of ground to cover. I, said, I wrote in my notes to tell you to fasten your seatbelts, but I know you don't actually have seatbelts, so let's get, get after it. So there's two distinct elements of, of these four verses. There is a witness that John is putting out there that John is saying, look, we want to testify to something that we actually experience. We want to be a credible witness to something that actually happened. So we're going to unpack that, that witness, that testimony. And then the other thing that's packed into these four verses is a proclamation, that we want to tell you something that you need to know in these four verses. So we're going to start with the witness part of what's in these verses. So if you look at verse 1, John writes the words, he says, which we have heard. He doesn't say which I have heard, he says which we have heard. And the very fact that he uses the word we tells us that there's more than one witness. That John is traveling with a group of, of, of fellow co-workers and that, that they were all witnesses to something. And what were they witness to? The, they, they were witness, they said that we have heard. He's saying we actually heard Jesus. We actually heard him preach. We were actually standing there when, when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. We were actually there seeing him, but we were, we were hearing his words. As a matter of fact, you could even get to the point where you realize that, that the disciples and, and the people traveling with John would have known Jesus' voice in the same way that you know a family member's voice or a close personal friend. You, you know their voice. They knew Jesus' voice. They knew the way he spoke. They had heard him. They were there when he cried out on the cross. They heard his words. And if that witness wasn't strong enough, they, they add to their, their testimony and they say that we, we heard him and, and we've also seen him with our own eyes. We've looked at him, it says. Some of your translations would say, we've seen him with our own eyes, we've gazed upon him. And I love the word gazed upon him because it, it's a richer sort of imagery for me. It's sort of like sitting on the beach and watching an incredible sunset and you just you're, you're captured by it. You gaze upon it. Or, or have you ever seen a, an amazing mountain scene and the mountains, you know, just rising up into the sky and you just, you're in awe. You just gaze upon it. We just sent our youngest son, Jacob, to the airport this morning to, to go to China. So it's been a, a daddy sort of week for me thinking about that. And uh, it's just, so when I think about the gaze upon, I've been thinking about my kids and how I just, I love to hold them when they were babies and just look at them. And the wonder of, like, look what God made. Look at how awesome this is. And I remember Meg and I standing over our kid's crib just staring at, just gazing upon our kids. It's, a, it's this picture of, of gazing upon. But the disciples, they, they watched Jesus. They watched him when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They watched him when he would, he would touch somebody and they would be healed from blindness. They were there when, when the lame would get up and walk. They actually watched him do these things. They saw it firsthand. They saw him get nailed to the cross. They saw him die the most brutal death in human history. But they also saw him risen from the dead. And John says, we, we heard him. And, and we saw him. And, and if that wasn't enough, if that's not enough of a, a good testimony, he's kind of building one on the other, and he reaches a climax when he says, look at the script, it says, and our hands have touched 
Sometimes when we translate the scriptures into the English language, something's lost in our vocabulary. We just don't have the right word for it. But the word here for touched is the same word that would be used to describe a blind man who is groping to find his way in his darkness. Or it could be a person with sight who is in a dark room and the only way to move along is to use your hands, to grope for feeling, to find your way. And, and you think about the imagery of that and John saying, no, we, we clung to him. We held on to him with, with all of our might. We, we, we hugged him. And, and I think about the imagery of this. Remember who's writing the letter. This is John, one of the apostles, the one Jesus loved. And the, the account of the Last Supper says that they were reclining at the table and John was laying his head on Jesus' chest. Imagine that picture of John with his head on his chest. He could probably hear Jesus' heartbeat. He, he didn't just hear him and he didn't just see him. He actually touched him. He was literally right there. Think about this as if it were a court of law. Think about these being your witnesses to prove a case, right? Think about how credible these witnesses are because they didn't just see it from afar. They didn't just observe the occurrences from across the street or or across the village. They weren't weren't long-distance witnesses. What they're saying is, no, we were literally right there. We, We could hear everything he said. We could see everything that happened. We could feel everything with our own senses of touch we were right there and there wasn't just one witness there were multiple witnesses and John's making it clear to the the people who are spreading the false teaching like they don't know what they're talking about I was there no I was right there and my friends were there and we saw him raise the dead we saw him do what he did we heard him teach us to who he really was he wasn't just a good man who did good things John's addressing the, the, the question of whether or not Jesus really was who he said he was. And they're saying, no, we were there. We saw it. And then he says these words. He said, and we proclaim to you. So he's making a, a proclamation. We proclaim concerning the word of life, the, the passage says. This proclamation is like an official announcement, right? It's when you make a proclamation, you're, you're putting something out there that, that you're proclaiming something that's very important. So John is making a proclamation And he's proclaiming the word of life. What does that mean? What does the word of life mean? So John in his his gospel of John, and then John in in 1 John, if you were to read both of those in one sitting, you would see that there are these amazing parallels that go between the two. And in the gospel of John, John says that that his exact words are that, 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 sorry, is that God was... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then it says he, and he's talking about Jesus, was with God in the beginning. And then if you go to to the Gospel of John in verses 3 and 4, he says, through him all things were made, with him nothing, without him nothing was made. He says, in him was life, the Word was of life, and that life was the light of man. So everything we see, everything we hear, everything we touch, everything we smell, everything we experience was made through him. So John calls him the word of life because life came through him. 
And why is this so foundational for us to know? Remember, in this verse that we're hearing this, this proclamation of God's purposes from eternity to eternity, these are foundational truths that we need to know and we need to hold on to, to to understand our very Christian beliefs. This is the very heart of our Christian belief. But why is this so important? Why is it so profound? Jesus is the author of life. Because Jesus is the only one who can save us from death. Because Jesus is our only hope for eternity. And it's not just an insurance plan to get us to to heaven later on. Jesus is the one who speaks life into any of the death we experience in this life. So the question is, where do you need a word of life in your life? Where do you have a death of a relationship that that haunts you? Where do you have a death in hopes or dreams? Where is it that there's there's this, this emptiness within you that you need God to speak into? And John is saying, Jesus is the word of life. That with just a word, he can speak life into emptiness, into darkness. There's a great author from the early 20th century. His name is Tozer. And Tozer says these words. He says, the word spoke to nothing, and it became something. And sometimes that's all we have is nothing. All I have is nothing. I just, I don't know what to do with this emptiness, God. And God says, all you need is a word from me. The word of life can speak into that. So go back to 1 John, verse 1. John opens his, his letter with another foundational truth. So, so we know that Jesus is the word of life. And then he says, that, was, that which was from the beginning. Very first words, that which was from the beginning. He says this to remind us that Jesus is eternal. That, that he was there in the beginning. That he was with the Father when, when things started. He was with the Father before the creation of the world. That he is and was, that, that Jesus is eternal. Remember, he's writing to, to address false teaching. He's writing to, to say, let me make it perfectly clear to you. Jesus is divinity. He is God. He is not just a man who came and lived a good life. He was there before the creation of the world. John is making it perfectly clear that Jesus was actually divinity. And he's saying that he lived in community, he lived in, in, in community, in the Godhead, with the Father, that he was there with the Father. So we begin to, to see elements of the Trinity, right? The, the, the three gods in one, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that Jesus was there. And the Trinity becomes critical thought for us in understanding our Christian faith because the Trinity is the only way, just stay with me for a minute, Jesus actually being God, being the Son of God, being part of the Godhead, that is the only way that his death could atone for our sins. You see, just a man couldn't pay the price for all of our sins. It took a very special man. It took God himself coming in the form of a man to die on the cross to pay for our sins. So there's a foundational truth that John wants to make sure that, that his readers understand. He wants to make sure that we understand that, that this Jesus, he's, he was there from the very beginning, that, he, that all things were made through him, and that he is part of the Godhead, that he is part of the eternal fellowship of God. And the other thing that the Trinity does for us is it, it helps us to understand what we, are, what we are made for. You see, the scriptures say that we're made in the image of God. And God exists in community. God exists in the, in the form of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is this, this perfect community. And if we're made in the image of God, that means that we are hardwired for community. 
It means we are made to live our lives not only in community with God, but in community with one another. Community isn't something we just do to help us out. It is what we are made for. That's why it's so important when we talk about Tuesdays at Grace or getting connected at Grace. That's why when we do the six essentials of how you can grow spiritually, being connected is one of those because you are made in the image of God. God exists in community and you cannot survive as a follower of Christ without having biblical community. It can't be done. It is what you are made for. So, we have this, this picture of creation in these first four verses. We have this, this picture of the Trinity, this picture of, of Jesus, part of the Godhead. And, and then he also says, though, he says that he came, we saw him, we touched him, right? We heard him. And so he's talking about that Jesus was actually there. He was there in the flesh. We saw him. And so this is what we call the incarnation. Another theological truth that we need to hold on to to understand our Christian faith. The incarnation, it's a foundational truth. Jesus actually had to be God, but he also had to be a man. Incarnation means divinity taking on flesh. Jesus, God, eternally in in community with the Father, became a man. He took on flesh. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him. And here's the, the reason for that. Here's the theological truth of that. So Paul tells us in Romans that because death came through Adam or death came through a human, the only way for us to receive life was through a human. Because this was a human condition, it took a human to overcome it. So Jesus had to come in the flesh and be fully God and fully man in order for the cross to mean anything to you and I. This is a foundational truth that we need to know and we need to hold on to if we're going to understand what it means to be a Christian. So the incarnation, it serves as a, as a picture for us, and, and it helps us, it solves this human problem that we have, but, but it also becomes a picture of how we are to live our own lives. The incarnation actually informs us of what our mission is as followers of Jesus. Let me explain that to you. So now in the Gospel of John, not in 1 John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is talking, and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Well, how did the Father send the son. Well, he sent him in the flesh. He sent him incarnationally, which isn't a word, by the way, but I don't know how to say it any differently. But he sent him incarnate into our lives. He sent him to be sacrificial to us. He sent him in such a way that that he, he could give to us. So the scriptures actually tell us that Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself nothing. He actually let go of all of his position and his privilege and came, and the scripture says he came as a man. Not just a man, but a servant. Not just a servant, but a servant who went to the cross for you and I. And Jesus says, so, so that's the way I did it, and, and that's the way God sent me, and that's the way I'm sending you. Jesus came to serve. We're sent to serve. Jesus came to live sacrificially. We're called to live sacrificially. Jesus came to love. We're called to love. In the same way the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So the incarnation is is foundational to our salvation, and it informs us as to what our personal mission ought to be. It tells us that we're called to sacrifice for others. It tells us that we're called to give our lives away on behalf of other people. Jesus got his hands dirty. 
he actually did the work of ministry, and we are called to do the same thing. The fact of the matter is the incarnation is so central to our faith that when we reflect on it, it changes how we understand about who we are in Christ. It changes our understanding of grace. So there's a great theologian, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer's writings, but he says these words. He says, when we actually know and we actually understand the incarnation, all that I'm talking about this morning, God, no, no God gave up his God, he, he like gave all that up. He, he just set it aside and came in the form of a baby. Like we, we tell the story all the time. Do you ever think about how amazing it is? You ever think about the truth of what we're talking about? He gave up all of that privilege and came in the form of a man and died for us. And you could just know that. You could just know that here. But, but Bonhoeffer's saying when you really know it, then we no longer live by cheap grace. And cheap grace is grace without a cross. Cheap grace is, is grace without any call to holiness. Cheap grace is grace without understanding all that Jesus willingly gave up for you and I. You see, when we meditate and, and, and contemplate the, the meaning of the incarnation, it fosters a heart of gratitude in us. It makes us grateful for what Jesus did for us. And you, you cannot have a heart of gratitude and not be gracious towards others. It just doesn't work that way. You cannot really contemplate all you have received from God and then withhold from other people. It changes who we are. So we literally are transformed when we spend time with God, when we spend time with the truth of our Christian faith. So a little more about the incarnation. There's a couple of authors. Tozer's one, and, uh, and the other one is uh, Robert Weber. I'm going to give you two quotes from them. So Tozer says, Unless the weight of the burden is felt... The gospel can mean nothing to man. Low views of God, low views of what God gave up, low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold on to them. Robert Weber wrote a great book called The Critique of Popular Evangelical Christian, um, Christianity. And he says the central problem with popular evangelical Christianity, he's talking about us, by the way, is the failure to comprehend the full implications of the Incarnation. Both of these are point, authors are pointing to the need for us to really understand as fully as we can in our human limitations the meaning and the cost of Jesus giving up the, all that he gave up and coming to earth for you and I to save us from our sins. This is the, 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 the joy that we have in understanding all that we have in Christ. The truth is if he didn't come in the flesh, if he didn't come as a man, then our faith is, is futile. If he didn't come as part of the Godhead, then we have nothing to rely on. It doesn't matter what we believe. This is the very core of the Christian faith. So I want you to think about it a little bit like this, because I think it's amazing. Jesus says, in the same way the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And so he also says, I came to make God's love known. I came to make the Father known. This is Jesus talking. He said, I came. I lived the way I lived. I went to the cross. I died for you to make the Father's known, the Father's love known. In the same way that the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So the scandalous truth of Christianity is we are entrusted with the burden and the privilege of making God known to others. The weight of being a follower of Jesus is now people are going to know the Father's love by the way we live our lives in front of them. 
We are entrusted with the same message to make the Father known. And the question is, do people see God when they watch you? Do people see the Father's love in the way you love them? Does your your spouse see Christ in you? Do your kids see Christ in you? Do do your coworkers see Christ in you? Are you living your life in such a way that you are making the Father's known? Because Jesus says, in the same way he sent me, I'm sending you. And he sent me to get my hands dirty, to serve, to give up my life for other people. Are you living a life sacrificially? Are people seeing Christ in you? There's a ton of theology in these four verses. We've talked about creation. We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about the Incarnation. And all of this is, is critical thought for us to know. But the problem is, it's not enough to know them. People who don't know who Jesus is could have taught everything that I've taught so far. It's not enough for us to know these biblical truths. We need to know them. We need to know them at a level that they begin to transform who we are. You need to meditate on the truth of who God is until it penetrates into your deepest soul and changes who you are as a person. It changes how you respond to others. You see, if if I'm really mindful and and understand the sacrifice Christ paid for me, if, if I really am aware in the front of my mind, front and center, with the length that God went to to save me, Doug Kempton, if I really understand all of that, it's pretty hard for me to be mad at anybody. It's pretty hard for me to lash out at Meg. It's pretty hard for me to, be, to lash out at my kids because I'm so aware of all that I received. It creates a heart of gratitude within me, a gracious spirit within me. The truth of all of this, if we really sit with it, if we really allow it to penetrate our, our spiritual pores, will change how we respond to others. We need to think about it. We need to meditate on it. But there's more. I know, four verses, all this. There's more. Look at 1 John 1.3. He says, we proclaim what we have seen and heard, so we make this proclamation of what we have witnessed, so that you may have fellowship with us. The major thread that runs throughout all of 1 John is how to have unity. Remember, there's division within the church, and he's addressing it, and we're going to unpack this week after week. But he's saying, look, if you experience God's love, you will love. If you're exposed to light, you will be light. If you, if you experience, listen to this, the divine fellowship of the Trinity, you will live in fellowship with one another. As we are invited into and experience the fellowship of the Trinity, It rubs off on us, and we begin to live in fellowship with one another. It transforms our community. He continues to write, look at verse 4. He says, and we write this to make our joy complete. I said it earlier, but remember, you are hardwired for community. You are hardwired to be connected with one another. It's the way God made you to be. It's the only way to survive. But when you live in divinely infused community, when when we are connected to the Trinity and we begin to live our lives out with each other in community, the product of that is joy. The product of that is a joy-filled life because we are connected with one another and because we have community with one another. These are the foundational truths that hold the church together. This is what makes for a healthy church, this divinely infused community that comes when our minds are, are set on the things of God. So there's a, there's a concept in here that I just want to show you as a way of bringing this all to a close. Look at, first, at John, 1 John 3. 1 John 1, 3. Sorry. 
He says, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So if you look at this one part of this one sentence, you actually three, see three people group in there, right? There is the you, the people that are receiving the letter. So you have fellowship with us. Who's the us? The people who are writing the letter, right? You will have fellowship with us as we have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And implied in there is God the Holy Spirit because we know they're the, part, the three are part of the, the Trinity. So as you connect with us and we connect with the Father, you're going to connect with us and you're going to connect with the Father. And so there is this, for lack of a better word, there is a triangular sort of picture here of, of God-centered community. So this is how this works. When I'm pursuing God, and Meg is pursuing God, we experience the community that God lives in, we experience the Trinity, we experience all that God has for us, and we actually have a better connection with each other. This is the only way to have a healthy relationship in a Christian context. And you can have friendships, but if you want to have biblical community, there are three parties involved, you, the other person, or you and the other persons, and God, that there has to be this connection of all three. And the thing is, we can short-circuit this at any time we want to. You see, if I take my eyes off of God, if I take my eyes off of the truth of the things we've been talking about, if I stop thinking about Jesus and the things of Jesus, Meg and I will struggle. We will struggle in the moment. It will happen almost instantaneously, and our relationship will begin to deteriorate. It's just the way that it works, that it requires all three parties to have a healthy relationship. If we want to have healthy small groups at Grace, then we have to be a group of people who are chasing after the things of God and experiencing the, the Godhead that is community, and that community is wearing off, and then we will have healthy community within the context of our small groups. There's no way to leave all three parties out if you want to have biblically infused community. The fact is, we cannot connect with others apart from being deeply moved and affected by God. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in us to draw us towards one another. Biblical community is a divinely inspired, supernatural thing. We cannot do it on our own. And if we want to be the church God's called us to be, then we need to be individuals who are chasing after the things of God. So we say we're a mosaic, striving to live like Jesus. That word striving has created angst in some people, like we believe that you have to work for what you have. No, but the scripture is clear. God calls us to chase after it, right? James says, if you, if you draw near to me, if you, if you resist the devil and draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That drawing near to him, Paul talks about running a race, of chasing after things. When we strive to live like Jesus, when we actually strive to know the, the truth of who Jesus was and all we've received in him and through him, then community will be formed out of it. This is an awesome letter. We are in for a treat as we study through 1 John. I believe it has the potential to change every person in this room. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for 1 John. Thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the, the theology packed into these four verses. I thank you that your purposes are unfolded from eternity to eternity, that you really did send your son. You really did walk in the flesh. He really did 
die on the cross. He really did raise from the dead. I thank you that you are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and your community is, draws us into a biblical community. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. But I pray that this study of 1 John will get into our pores, that we will be excited in, in studying it on our own and coming back and receiving all that you have for us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the people of grace. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as you're leaving, they're going to give you one of these bags. Um, this is what we stock the food pantry with. We served 90 families in the food pantry yesterday, so there is literally nothing left in the pantry. So fill these bags up, bring them back next week, and we'll use that uh, food that you bring to uh, help people next week. God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday. And go Tigers! <laughs>